You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 32. How happy are you at work? Numbers around employee engagement, that's satisfaction and interest in the type of work you do and the environment in which you do it, suggest there's a high probability that you're not happy at work at all. In fact, those numbers are startling. They're frightening. And when you combine them with stats around the percentage of our lives that we actually spend at work, you might even describe them as a crisis of the human condition. My guest in this episode is Karen Rounds. Karen is an expert in wellness at work. She has devoted her professional life to helping employees, leaders, and organizations engineer an environment that increases happiness, life satisfaction, and the effectiveness of individual and collective efforts. Karen sees the quality of our connections in the workplace as the determining factor for levels of engagement and happiness. In the conversation you're about to hear, we discuss the symptoms of an unhealthy workplace, its causes. And of course, Karen outlines some simple steps we can all take that have the potential to transform our workplace environments. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the very healthy Karen Rounds. Karen Rounds, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you, David. Karen, you're an expert in wellness at work, and I've had a lot of fun preparing for our chat today. I've read a bunch of your blogs, which are terrific, by the way, and I've also spent a bit of time looking at the numbers around employee engagement, or actually the lack of employee engagement. It's a fascinating topic. It's no wonder you're so enthusiastic about the work you do. Well, it is, and it's an exciting topic, and it's um, even more so because it's relatively new, and and people are, are just starting to really get on board with it. So it's got so much enthusiasm behind it at the moment that um, I feel like we're on a crest, really, on a momentum. It is a new topic, and we'll talk about your postgrad in wellness soon. But it boggles my mind as to how this is a new topic. I've done a little bit of maths on the, the kind of numbers when we think about how much time we spend at work. If you, if you have the stock standard kind of a career, let's say you work from about 20 to 65 and you work 48 weeks of the year and, and if you're lucky, 40 hours a week, that means that you're spending around 1,920 hours of your life mm. at work every year. And now that equates over a working life to get this, 76,800 hours of your life at work, yet <laughs> the idea of wellness at work, mm. and, and I know it's much more than being happy and we'll talk about that, but the idea of wellness at work being mm. new boggles my mind. Where have you been? Well, that that's right. And oh my goodness. And when you say those numbers, David, it's uh, for anybody who's listening, they're probably feeling quite depressed right now. <laughs> so, um, you, you know, we are, we are at work a lot and um, work situations have changed and we're starting to see a little bit of backlash from that. So, you know, a couple of numbers that I have as well is that, you know, when you look at people within the workplace, we've got 87% of employees worldwide are actually not engaged in their in their work at the moment, you know, for some reason or another. We've got things like absenteeism and presenteeism coming up in conversations with HR. You know, th these are really serious matters and, um, and it's really, it's, it's, quite astounding because when you look at that and then you think that probably only 25% of workplaces, in fact, 25% of workplaces have only have 
an engagement strategy. So there are 75% of the workplaces out there, organisations who don't even know how they're going to deal with this. But one of the ways that has come up is this topic of workplace wellness on the back of actual wellness itself. And it is starting to get a bit of momentum. And interesting, David, it probably sort of started getting that momentum when workplaces started to realize that they were saving millions, if not billions of dollars when they started to implement workplace wellness strategies. And and that's really only, you know, those numbers have only come up in the last eight to 10 years. And there's some really great numbers about that. Uh, I've got some numbers about the cost of disengagement from a workplace. Uh, we, we might talk about those later, but mm. you touched on some numbers there. You gave us some worldwide numbers of people who are either engaged, actively disengaged or not engaged. Mm. I've got some numbers here as well that I want to share. The US is actually pretty good in terms of these numbers. Australia is is quite good from a world standard, lagging behind the US in some ways. I'll I'll give you an idea of of what I mean. So in the US, we have they have 31% of their workforce engaged. That's a, yep. an awfully low number. When you compare when you add that to the the numbers we talked about before, spending 76,000 hours of your work life at work, to think that only 31% of people in the US are engaged with what they're doing is a real mm. shame. In Australia, that number is is lower. It's 24% Ooh. of people who are engaged with the work they're doing. A terrible crime. And and then there's the other numbers, people who are actively disengaged. Mm. This is where Australia is actually a bit better than the US, mm. only slightly. 16% of people are actively disengaged in Australia and 60% are not engaged. So that's a total of 76% who are not engaged to some degree in their work. In the US, that's 17.5% are actively disengaged, 51% not engaged. So again, another high number of people who are who are just not into the work that they're doing. So where has this problem come from? Has it been around forever or is this a 21st century phenomenon? I think, you know, again, touching on how the workplace has completely changed from how it's been in, in the past, it's, it is a, a newish sort of phenomenon, really. And it's been exacerbated by how quickly we've evolved with technology. And, you know, technology has done so much for us, but in a way, it's taken so much away as well. So, when we look at people that are disengaged within the workplace, we can actually drill that down even further and say, you know, there's Gallup polls as to why are people disengaged? And, you know, things like like just not having a connection with their managers, not having a connection with the people that they work with. You know, these are, are some of the the top factors of why people aren't getting along. Yet, really, we're more connected than we've ever, ever been. You, we, we walk around with devices where we can instantly connect with anybody that we want to. But half the problem with that is, is that we're actually not connecting on an emotional level because we're not standing face to face with somebody. We're not actually having a genuine conversation with somebody. We're not, you know, inquiring how how they are from a point of really wanting to know. We're just going through the motions. We're getting things done. I mean, David, when you can sit in, in a desk and send an email to someone who's you know, less than, yeah. than five metres away from you, you've really got to ask yourself, you know, hmm, you know what, what's happening over here? So it's a really interesting point that you make about technology. I mean, it, it's kind of obvious, I guess, but it's, it's so profound isn't it? We're so connected electronically that maybe it's given us a false sense of connectedness. Our engagement numbers are telling us that people feel as though they don't have quality connections at work. But as as we know, we're more connected than ever. So do you hope that perhaps we're in this really early stages of this hyper-connected society and we're just getting used to dealing with it, Mm. that hopefully in the future we won't make these kind of mistakes against humanity, like sending emails to someone who's sitting a few metres away from us. We will actually get out of our chair and go and speak because right now we're grappling with what is still, I guess, Mm. an immature technology. 
Oh, absolutely. And when we when we look in in hindsight in 20 years time and you know even further really we'll be wondering why we were even you know doing the things that we were doing and we only have to look at some of the the issues that are starting to crop up now so you know i sometimes put some little discussions out there in the world wide web talking about <laughs> connecting but um we're hypocrites, like, aren't we? well it, like i said you know there there are ways it works really well i i am you know I'm always astounded how I can talk to people all over the world. I love that. I love that. But I don't stop talking to the people I live with. Around <laughs> so, me. That's right. But, you know, I put these things out about things, that topics like email protocol and, you know, as if we'd even have to have that discussion, but we do. This is the whole thing. And I think we will look back on that and um, think, wow, you know, we got all of this so quickly and we really didn't think about how we were going to use it to our benefit. And there is so much benefit. Of course, there's lots of benefit in a global industry. Of course. Mm. In some ways, we're a bit like a child with a new toy, aren't we? Where any mm. child, even myself, my memories of childhood, when I got a new toy, it went with me everywhere. But over time, it, there was some equilibrium reached and I just used it at sort of sensible proportions to my life. So perhaps we're a bit like that with technology at the moment. You mentioned a time in 20 years when we will look back on 2016 and say, haha, remember when we used to send emails to the person sitting next to us rather than talking to them? Mm. I hope that's the case. I hope in 20 years time, we don't look back and say, haha. Remember when it used to matter that we didn't speak to each other? <laughs> now it just doesn't matter. No, no. Well, if we if we look at these numbers, all the reports and all the studies and research that have been carried out around disengagement are actually showing that this is on an increase. And the thing that matters the most in organizations, David, is the bottom line and productivity is the first thing that suffers when workers are disengaged. So it will definitely be addressed. It is being addressed and people will start thinking about how they're connecting and how they're approaching their fellow workers. In fact, I think, you know, the first sort of things that will start to happen is we will we will see the workplace environment itself start to change and and when we have a look at leaders mm, and we've seen yeah that. yeah when we have a look at leaders such as Google and and you know workplaces where they're predominantly working with computers and online technology they're the first to start to realize okay well we can't just have people sitting in little boxes you know we're going to take down the barriers, the physical barriers. We're going to have communal places. We're going to have, you know, we're going to introduce a bit of play into the workplace. So, you know, there's, of course, they're, they're seeing it. First. They're the ones that are the most involved in this technology. So we have great hope that it will take hold as an issue because as you say, it affects the bottom line. And that of course means that action will eventually need to be taken. That's that's great. That gives me a lot of optimism, Karen. <laughs> now, when you started your postgrad into wellness a number of years ago, it was the kind of degree that wasn't well known at all. And you've mentioned to me before that people used to ask you what on earth you were doing. And that has changed to the point now where people think they know what it's about, but they've got it badly wrong. Tell us about that journey. Yes. So when I first uh, heard about the postgraduate degrees that were at um, RMIT, I, I, I was astounded. First of all, I thought, oh my goodness, they've actually qualification that is around something that I've always looked at, thought about. And, and then I was working in education at the time and went to my senior manager and said to her, you know, there's a postgraduate degree in, in wellness and I'm thinking about doing it. And uh, she just looked at me and very, very What's blank faced. And, yeah. And it was like, really? What is that? You know? And to be honest, David, I struggled with telling her what it was. And, and I said, well, I said, if I started telling you what it is, I said, I, I think you actually probably won't allow me to do it. So, or give me the time to do it. So I think you just have to trust that, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And I was the course coordinator for spa and beauty at the time, and they fit into the wellness industry. 
And I said, and it's going to propel our industry like you would not believe. And I must have just said all the right words around, you know, the bottom line and money. And she says, well, okay. Sort of, and I went ahead and started to do it. And, you know, that journey has been incredible because that's been four years and of doing a graduate certificate and then a graduate diploma. And from that time, I've watched wellness going from an area where I would even hesitate with my friends what I was doing because it would be like, oh, really? You know, what, what sort of, that? well, that must just be easy, really, to seeing it used in commercials, seeing it used for dog food, seeing it used for all sorts of things. You can find, you know, wellness has become the marketing word, a little bit like sustainability was probably about 10 years ago you know, the word wellness. Right. And the next one that's really catching on is coaching. So It sure is. So you've watched this thing that is very valuable to you that you see with great depth and you understand it profoundly being watered down in a commercial sense. Is that happening in the workplace as well? Are organizations taking on board things that they're calling wellness programs, but for someone like you, are programs that barely scratch the surface of what matters? Yes. Look, you know, I take my hat off to organizations. They, you know, they are making the attempt. A wellness model is, it's a multidimensional model and it takes into consideration the physical aspects, the psychological aspects, the spiritual and the social. So everything that makes us, you know, who we are as a person. So that's all in wellness the thing is with wellness, and, and a really good way to explain this, David, is um, when we look at John Travis's, who's actually a forefather of modern wellness, he describes wellness as a continuum. So if you can picture a line and at one end you have high level wellness and at the other end you have sickness and death, basically, <laughs> and in the middle you have a neutral point. So what happens is a lot of us will go from this neutral point that we think is well, but it's just without having any significant illness or real wellness for that matter. And then we travel along along our paths right. and then we might get a little sick. So we're moving towards this sickness area and we'll go to a doctor or something like that. And then we get back to neutral point and we think we're well. High-level wellness is actually about moving beyond that point of neutral. So it's not just taking into consideration the physical aspect of how you feel. Taking into consideration, you know, the people that you're talking to every day. Are you sociable? Are you getting out? Do you have connections? Is there something bigger than yourself that you think about? You know, when you go outside, do you get that feeling of... Um, Everybody knows it when it's, a, when it's a lovely sunny day and you walk outside and you go, oh, you know, it's a feeling that of wellness and that's what we're aiming for. That's what we're aiming for people to go for. Not for this keep on getting back to the neutral point, just, you know, be satisfied with my blood pressure's fine, I'm at a healthy weight for how I feel and I exercise this many times a week. That is not wellness. There is so much more to that. <laughs> I was picturing as you were talking that the continuum, and, and that's a great thought, actually, that so many of us might think we're well we're, when really we're just sitting in the neutral. We're not unwell, whereas we could be aiming for higher. We could be aiming for our emotional, physical, social, and spiritual life to all, and mental life to, to all be in balance. And I understand that's what wellness is. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second, though, Karen. Yes. Why is it an employer's responsibility to ensure that you are well? Isn't that your personal responsibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that is something that I'm very, very passionate about and, you know, have co-developed a whole program around that. It is, you know, self-efficacy is so important in wellness. Nobody else can actually make you feel well. Nobody else can take you to that high level wellness except for yourself. The reason yeah. why workplaces have embraced their employees' wellness is because, first of all, 
wellness as it comes out from America, where it, it, it has you know already started well and truly at least 30 years of wellness going on over there. And it's very tied in with their health insurance schemes. So it's in their interest that their employees are feeling well, but they have focused on, on a physical element with that as well. The thing is, in our workplaces, what's actually starting to show up more is the psychological illness, if you like, you know, that people are suffering from. So just to go back to a few numbers, David, in Australia, if we talk about workplace wellness programs over here, in Australia, Australian workers are donating, if you like, $110 billion of free work. So we're actually working six hours more than we're paid to do because we're taking our work home. We're we're looking at it on the train on the way there. We're worrying about it. And what actually fast heading towards is burnout. So when we've got disengagement, disengagement is a very, very clear indication of people that are just having enough, really. And you can't continue to work like that. So in a way, workplaces are the perfect environment. You're a captive audience in your workplace, <laughs> not only when you're there, but obviously when you look at Australian workers, when you're out of there as well. So it's the best place for employers to show their employees some strategies around actually creating a level of wellness for themselves. Because again, if the employers aren't there, if they're starting to become disengaged, if they head towards burnout, if we're looking at work cover, we are still looking at expenses. So I don't know if it's all very altruistic. I'm sure it is for a lot of companies. But at the end of the day, the numbers are yelling at us that a workplace wellness programs vital. And back to it being a self-responsibility aspect, then you know, workplaces need to be very choosy about how they pick their workplace wellness programs as well, because workplace wellness programs that actually develop a positive mindset and develop an employee's self-efficacy are going to do so much better than someone trying to push the envelope with aspects of health promotion that we are already well and truly flooded with information about. We all know how to have a healthy diet. We all know how much exercise we need, but we don't have that motivation, that mindset to not all of us to do it. So mindset first before anything else. I'm going to ask you soon about a workplace wellness program and what that looks like in a real tangible sense. But before we get there, the things you were talking about then just reminded me of what we mentioned earlier, that's immature stage we're at with technology. Sure, we feel like technology is such a, a part of every aspect of our lives, but really we're quite immature with it. For a long time now, it's been so common for us to all go home from work and continue to check our emails and be contactable on the phone. That's we've given in that way. And our life has, yeah, our private life has merged with our work life in that way. But yet, at the same time, we're quite immature when it comes with pushing the other way. We haven't yet really and truly, as a society, accepted flexible work conditions. The idea that just as much as I'm available at night to check my email, I should be just as available during the day to be able to go and watch my son play soccer or Mm. at my daughter's sports carnival, because that's the give and take. We've done a lot of giving Mm. of our time in terms of being available, but we're not yet all that great about taking and making sure that our work life is still in balance. There's some harmony. It's different to how it used to be when we used to have a very clear cut eight hours a day at work. It will never be the same as that again, because we're so connected, but it's almost as though we've got another level of maturity to reach when it comes to accepting these new facts. That's so true. And, um, I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate now, and I'm going to say that it's probably our youngest cohort of workers who have the most maturity around that. Yeah, and, I um, And it's older cohort that just finding it hard to grasp. So when we, when we talk about things like that, I think we really need to look at, at leadership qualities here and how, how leaders view that, because I know a workplace setting. So in education, 
that it was it was something that came up again and again and again. And we could quite easily, quite easily take a lot of work home. In fact, you know, with online learning, that was going to become even more so. And senior managers were grappling with the idea of how they were actually going to keep an eye on their employees. And that even that in its even as I say it, I think, you know, how old-fashioned is that? You know, like we've long gone past clocking in and clocking out. And, you know, the numbers, the stats are there that we are putting in way more hours than we actually need to do. And at the end of the day, David, good workers, good conscientious workers will always be that. And the ones that, if you like, actively disengaged or just not there at all, really. It doesn't matter if they're sitting behind their desk or they're sitting at home or wherever. They're still at the coffee yes, shop. The, the mindset, the mindset is still going to be the same. I think, you know, organizations are starting to grasp this idea and it will be with the millennial generation because they are the ones who who will push this. And as they they're the 18 to 35. So they're already starting to house management positions. They're already starting to be uh, junior to, to middle management and senior in some instances as well. So they, they certainly are. They will go for this. And because this fits around how they see life, they're so used to it. This is how they did school. And they got through fun, really. <laughs> You're absolutely right. In, in fact, I've since recorded an episode on the generations at work focusing on millennials, X's and, and boomers and the way they work together. I've recorded it, but not yet put it out. So I'll, I've got an episode that, that very much focuses on that conversation, Karen. And and you're absolutely right. The millennials or the Gen Yers, they just expect that to be the case because that's how they've lived their life, completely connected. For so many of boomers and exes who see technology as an add-on, it doesn't come quite as naturally to them. The idea that someone I employ might best work from a coffee shop and not on site at all. Mm. And I'm wondering how many of the people who are listening to this podcast today have got a leader who is more than okay with them checking their email when they're at home with their kids after work hours, but will balk at the idea of them doing some work during work hours from another location. It seems like an unfair mismatch. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, my children fall into the millennial generation and it's quite funny because they ha- I've watched them slowly slide off um, social media, if you like. So really? they, they're, they're out of Facebook and they all these sort of things that, that we used to probably have arguments about at home when they lived at home. And, and instead, it's their grandparents and people of my generation who used to be embracing that. And I think, you know, again, let's have a look at the mindset. When we're on social media, we're using it as a social tool. And we don't really think as a whole beyond that. And so as a leader who's in that generation of seeing it that way, it's hard for them not think of it as something that you're just fooling around with. And, you know, it's interesting because back to when I was talking about absenteeism and presenteeism, when presenteeism, when that word first came out, a lot of uh, leaders were saying things like, oh, yes, you know, they're at work, but they're not really there. And that's because they're just so busy in their social media and things like that, or playing games on the computer. And that couldn't have been any further from the truth that, you know, they were actually at work, but disengaged. That was just the beginning of this whole you know, flood of disengagement that's happening within the workplace. Karen, that word presenteeism has come up on my podcast a few times. I have to admit when it first came up, I think it was Stacey Copas back in about episode 12 who mentioned it. I didn't know what it was, but <laughs> now I'm, I'm really aware of it. I've heard it a few times. We all know what absenteeism, it's when you're just not there at work, you call in sick or don't turn up. Presenteeism is when you're at work, but you're not engaged. You're not doing your work. And we've already given a number of figures around that and and how bad that is in Australia and Mm. the US and the UK has very similar numbers. And by the way, in my numbers there that I'm just glancing at now, we know that 
that disengagement or presenteeism costs the Australian economy around $33 billion annually. Yep. And uh, that's a huge sum of money. So you're right to say that this will gain traction as a concept because it has to. Businesses and organisations are losing too much money for them to continue to ignore it. And I, again, I got my calculator. I've been wild with my calculator this morning. <laughs> I did the numbers. I, I, I adjusted it for GDP and, and for the currency. It's costing the US around, where's my US number? $418 billion a year. And it costs the UK about 41 billion pounds per year. This whole concept of disengagement at work. So it's got to catch hold. And someone like you with a postgrad in wellness will be well-placed. Well, you already are well-placed, Karen. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Hey, tell us, Hmm. what does a wellness program at work look like on that very tangible level I was asking about before? Okay, so... For a workplace wellness program to be in place, it has to embody a wellness philosophy. So it can't just be called a workplace wellness in name only. So it needs to be a holistic tool into into consideration all the aspects of wellness. And we need to stop having this blurred line between health and wellness. We just need to call it really. So all dimensions need to be included. And it, it needs to be placed that be sustainable growth, David. And that's really, really important because mm. wellness is not about a quick fix. And unfortunately, we are so used to our, our quick fixes. And we just, we, you know, we've got the gratification button. We've just got it on and dialed up to 10 all the time. And to actually have to re- program yourself, if you like, with new habits and learn both, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, then this takes time. To have a positive mindset and to be self-responsible, that actually does take time for people to learn that. So I could give you, you know, different examples of workplace programs. There's online programs. There's programs that happen within workplaces And a lot of the times you'll see aspects of them. So when a workplace takes on wellness, I would hope that it would start with looking at the person's mindset first. So let's start having a look at what the person's strengths are. Start having a look at what actually makes them rock at work. You know, what makes them feel like they're really kicking some goals and then start building on that once we've actually started to create a little bit of positivity around the workplace, once we've all started to learn to connect with one another within the workplace, then we can move on to other aspects of wellness. And I would see things like the more health aspects of wellness, I would see them in the middle rather than the very start. And things that are a lot more personal, like spiritual wellness and they don't actually need to be programs. They just be recognized. So around diversity and workshops like that, that's where you'd be able to introduce those sort of concepts. So a, a good quality wellness program has to be holistic. It can't just about be about physical well-being, which you have seen some organizations take on and think they're doing wellness. A wellness program that's good quality and has a hope of working needs to be seen not as a quick fix, but as a, a long-term embedded kind of a mindset. It needs to be focused on the strengths of people who work there. So they feel great at work doing the type of work that they really enjoy, as you say, work that makes them rock. And we know that good leaders, leaders who engage the people who they work with, mm. focus on the strengths rather than focusing on the weaknesses. As Dr. Clifton said, We need not be well-rounded as individuals, but teams should be. And it was a false hope that we'd we'd all be well-rounded. It actually makes much more sense at an individual, a team, and an organization level to focus on what people are naturally good at because that's what they enjoy doing and that's what they're going to get the the most satisfaction out of doing at work. So that's really great advice. Now, I had another question that has completely escaped my mind as I was waffling on then. 
What about the individuals, Karen? They're, they're the type of things that we hope organizations put in place. What about me as an individual leader, someone who works with a number of people? I might be part of a team. I might be the boss of the team. What is it that I can do at work that will really help me and my feeling of well-being, my level of engagement and those around me? Yeah, so that's a good question. And I think that really when we start to to look at the individual, we have to look at how we're connecting. So we have to see, when I go to work, we have to ask ourselves, do I talk to people when I'm at work? Do I actually pay attention to what people are saying to me? Do I connect on a level that is a little bit more than just the hello and then my head's down and and I'm getting stuck into my work? Because that's really important in work, David. And that's really, really important when it comes to wellness in work as well, because wellness itself is quite subjective. So what I mean by that is that what makes you feel well is different to what makes me feel well. So in a way, it's quite difficult for workplaces to put in programs that fit everybody. But the Mm. one thing that does really tie us all in is the way that we connect. And when people are connected, they actually start to exude wellness qualities. So they start to feel happier. They start to work better. They start to to find meaning in their day. So that's why I am a big advocate about how we connect within the workplace. And I've got a, a model that I've worked on with my partner that we call positive directional communication. And I know, you know, if anybody's, you know, raising an eyebrow, because if you've ever been in a workplace, have you not done communication to death? You probably have. There's always some communication workshop or professional development that's going on. But this is, this is a little bit more than just your open and closed communication and having the serious conversation or the meaningful conversation. This actually takes down communication and breaks it up into six aspects of models that are strength-based, used within positive psychology that you can use in the workplace to connect and communicate with those that are around you. So would you like me to tell you about those? That was my (laughs) next question. What are those six things that fit within the positive directional communication? Okay. So the first one is psychological flexibility. And anybody who has stumped their toe or not to their elbow, will know very quickly how, how your emotions can rise out of nowhere. And you can be having a, having a good time and then you knock yourself and you be having a little bit of swearing and all sorts can be coming out. And, and that's a, a funny aspect of it. But what actually happens when people are not psychologically flexible is that they can just ebb and flow throughout the day. So, you know, something comes along and that's good. And it's like, yeah, that's great. And then something comes along and it's a little bit stressful and it's like, oh, stress now. And, you know, that's really, really- Life's a roller coaster. Yes. You'd be exhausted. But, you know, we, we can all think of somebody in the workplace that we've worked with that that's like that. And you sort of like just, you know, you're on tender hooks around them. Yeah. So- you need to actually practice psychological flexibility. You just need to take a bit of a breath. And when things come up, just give it a pause. Just handle it. Yes. Go with the flow a bit. Yeah. Pause and then handle it. That's exactly right. And you will start to build resilience. And that is so important. So, you know, because if you're not psychologically flexible, you can go from you know, you don't just react to the big things, you start reacting to little things. And mm, when you're doing that, they've build up. That's it. Life is really, really, it's a bit like days of our lives then. That's what it feels like. And nobody wants that. So the second and one- you take on that, that victim mentality when you feel like everything's going wrong for you. Absolutely. And everybody else around you starts to wear it as well. And the second one is active listening. And I know, I know we ha- have actually heard this, active listening. And but this is my favorite. And, and I've been working with communication models for over 20 years. And I still think that this is the one that people just do not get. And I have a little sticky note that sits on my computer, particularly when I'm doing Skype calls and when I don't get to see the person. And it's got in capital letters, wait. 
And David, that stands for Why Am I Talking? (laughs) That's a good one. And I think it's so important because we are constantly thinking of what clever thing can I tell this person next? And and we haven't really even heard what they've had to say. The other thing... Yeah, rather than listening to what they're saying. That's exactly right. And of course, you know, when you're excited in a conversation, when you're enthusiastic, it's it's even harder to um, keep a a watch for that. So another thing I do is sit on my hands because I'm a big hand talker. So my hands are all over the place when I talk. And if I sit on them, I'm just a little bit more quiet. So, (laughs) you know. Excellent. So no, I was just going, I was just saying, so active listening, as you say, is one of those things that we hear so regularly and we could claim to be so familiar with it, but in reality, it's really difficult to implement that consistently, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It it is, I would say it was the number one thing that was really difficult for people to do. And it's really interesting because it's the thing that you get taught in school so often, but somewhere along the line, we just run loose with it and it picks up its momentum. And by the time we're in the workplace and we've been in meetings where we've seen this, there are just some people who just probably never heard of that concept of active listening. So, um, It takes a sustained effort and concentration to make it a habit of yours, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that brings me to my um, third point, which is mindfulness. And this is so important. And I know mindfulness has made quite a big move into workplaces, which is really great, I must say, from a a wellness point of view, because of course, it's, it's bringing in another dimension of wellness. But, you know, for some people, it's a little bit off putting because because when we think of mindfulness, a lot of us do think of, of traditions and particularly Buddhist traditions and rightfully so and with respect. But mindfulness does not need, you know, we don't need to be meditating to be mindful. We just need to have a little bit of a pause and we just need to take that time to consider what is actually happening in the moment. And it, this is really interesting, David, you know, when I was looking at um mindfulness, I noted that it was, you know, it's so opposite to multitasking, which was so popular when in the 80s, 90s. You know, if you could multitask in the workplace, you were just, uh, in fact, you put it on your resume, great at multitasking. And, <laughs> and I was sort of thinking- and None that, of us are good at multitasking no, in reality. No. And if someone put they were good at multitasking now on a resume, I'd be thinking, okay, so you actually can't set your mind to anything. Um, you know, Terrible at focusing. Yes. Yes. And, you know, interesting enough, IBM, you know, actually coined that term Did of they? multitasking. Yes. In a paper when they were presenting a computer model in 1965. And when you think of it in that context, it makes so much sense. You know, here's a computer that can multitask. And all of a sudden we think that, you know, Yeah, we can (laughs) as well. Because of course, if you're trying to multitask, you're robbing yourself of focusing really intently on one task and and doing it well. You're robbing yourself of the opportunity to get into that state of flow where you're doing fantastic work, it's effortless, and time seems to fly by. Yes. You can never get into that state if you're multitasking. Never. And, you know, it shouldn't be commended. You know, New York Times just wrote that American businesses have just lost the year that's just gone $650 billion just due to multitasking alone. It's incredible. <laughs> I, I always wonder how they can put numbers around these things, but uh, you've got to give it so it's obviously a grave concern. Whether that's that dollar number is right on the money or not, you know, I know. probably open to question, but it gives us a, an idea of the scale of the issue. Yeah. All right. Well, so with psychological flexibility, active listening, mindfulness, what's number four on your list of six, Karen? So positive reinforcement is number four. And this is, you know, it's so important for our peers to feel that they're they are accepted and they're acknowledged and they get support from the environment that they work in in a positive way. So positive recognition is incredibly important. You know, so for leaders in particular, and when we talk about disengagement again, this is one of the top complaints is that there was no feedback, no recognition, no positive recognition from, yeah. from their leaders. 
And um, which, of course, you know, when you're working and it's not enough to say, well, you get paid because in fact, pay wasn't rating very high at all around engagement. So, you know, people are looking for the more altruistic aspects of work. They're looking for that connection. So when we have a look at positive reinforcement, we see that friendships are actually reinforced more through a celebration, David, and through positive events than through support of negative events. So the friends that we have the closest and we think of as our dearest are actually those that are there to give us that pat on the back and, you know, and celebrate our wins with us. Of course, it's good to have friends that are there when things are down, but they don't actually rate as high as the ones that are there when, when things, things are, are good. good as well. Yes. That's interesting. And and no one's suggesting that we should be aiming towards having our, you know, our best friends at work. But what we're saying there is that the same principle applies in the workplace. Your your best colleagues, the most positive and constructive and productive people that you work with are those who are able to give you a, a pat on the back when you've done good work and encourage you when you need it. It always worries me, and I know that almost every organization does it, when they have the the three monthly or six monthly mm. or yearly reviews. And I know they're great and I know they serve a purpose, but I get concerned that what it does in the mind of leaders or managers, maybe more to the point, is they think, oh, well, that box is ticked. I give this person feedback every six months. That's my job. Rather than that real on the ground, as we're doing our work, when we really need it, on-call positive reinforcement that we know has such a positive effect on people's performance. That's my concern about those kind of scheduled reviews. Do you have the same thoughts or am I waffling there? No, no, absolutely. I agree. And it does feel like that. And if workplaces, if organisations don't think that their employees are thinking that way as well, then they're severely out of touch because they are thinking like that. And you know, they've moved a little bit away from where the feedback, so doing the the reviews were about, okay, now what can we improve? They do have the little boxes now of, okay, this is what you did well, and then this is what you can improve on, and how can we help you do that sort of business? But if your manager is not connecting with you any other time, and if that just gets filed away in to the HR file that that's done, then very quickly they're going to to lose faith in the organization very quickly. So, you know, those things need to be followed up all the time. And it's not, and that's not to say we need to be doing them once a month. In fact, we just need to not be doing them like that. We need to be connecting on a, on a much more personal level And instead of having some form where you can see that there's boxes and little things to write in, let's have a conversation. Let's, you know, let's both write something after it, what we got out of that conversation. Something I learned about you today, David, something you learned about me, something, you know, to show that we were actually listening and and we got that. But, you know, there's all sorts of factors that come up, you know, time restraints and, and money. And I hear it all the time, but I think, well, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it doesn't equate to the same amount of money that's being lost when that person walks out of the door with all their talent. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, we're up to number four. What's number five on the list, Karen? So number five is appreciative inquiry. And <laughs> Ooh, tell me about that. That sounds interesting. Yeah, so rather focusing on the problem hand, so rather than sort of like when something comes to you and you're going, oh my goodness, appreciative inquiry is about looking at the strengths that you have and building on those. So you get a, um, a report that you have to have in and, and you're looking at it and you're thinking, oh, no way, I, I can't get that done. And things like that. And then it's um, instead of that, think, okay, look, you know, I'm pretty good at organizing my time and and I'm pretty good at doing this particular part of that. And when you start on working on the things that you are strong at, then that negative feeling that's that rose, you know, in the initial phase will then start to subside. So, you know, because it's it's very interesting, David, that you know, we are a bit wide for negativity. So we are. Um, <laughs> I, I read a fantastic blog that you wrote about exactly that. Yeah. So, 
And it's, it, you know, it's something we can't just change at a drop of a hat, but we can be aware of it and we can be a bit mindful about it and take that time just to give it a bit of space. And then we can think, okay, that might be the case, but I have these strengths and I'm going to, you know, start with that first. And, it's and time for us way. to get past that caveman, isn't it, where we had to be scared of everything because everything might have been a lion, but we haven't got past it, have it? The modern dictionary, as I think you said in your in your blog, has 62% negative words and 32% positive words. That's a scary factor. We haven't quite moved past caveman stage yet, have we? We're an inherently yeah. negative beast. <laughs> We are, we are. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we just don't have enough words to describe the positive feelings that we have. And we should be we'd be even making some up and they should be going into the <laughs> Google dictionary, maybe, you know, <laughs> Wikipedia or something. All right. So how about number six, Karen? Talk us through the last one. Okay, David. So number six is gratitude. And it's not there because it's the least important. In fact, it's incredibly important. And if having the ability to find something positive, you know, in your day, no matter how small it is, is so, it's so important to how things are going to go for the rest of the, because we can build upon it. And I wanted to just, you know, tell you about this theory that positive psychologist Barbara Fredrickson proposed that when we have positive emotions and we become aware of them, we actually start to build a little bank of them. We start to build a bank of our experiences. And when things are, when the chips are down and, and when things aren't so good, we can actually draw on this, this little bank of our, our positive, draw on that bank, yeah, yeah. these positive emotions. And we can actually evoke that feeling that they gave us at the time. When we think of the circumstance, we'll start to to get the feeling back. And and that that's priceless because what starts to happen, you you start, it has an upward spiraling effect and it's quite powerful. The other side of that, if you want to focus on the negative and you will then go on a downward spiral because one negative thought will always evoke another negative thought and another and another and another. <laughs> I love your list, Karen. And, you know, as we talk through them and you explain them, they make so much sense. And I can see how they, they form this wellness package for individuals and an organization. But there's this terrible paradox, isn't there? Because we're trying to turn something around. We're trying to turn around these awful statistics about workplace disengagement. Mm. Yet, so many of these terms I know would be met with cynicism <laughs> and a smile or a sly kind of snigger because there's a kumbaya feel to some of them, but we know they're real and the numbers tell us that this is a serious problem. Yet a lot of people could dismiss this if it suits them because it's not their style and they're embedded in the old ways. They could dismiss this as airy-fairy kind of lightweight stuff. Oh, absolutely, David. And, you know, these are the people who might enjoy a little bit of negativity or negative emotion in, in their life. But the thing is, we, of course, we've heard them. And, and you know, active listening is, is a classic example of something that we've heard again and again and again. Yeah. But until you actually start to practice them. So with positive directional communication, it's not just about hearing them. It's actually about being able to implement them. So you need a program where you can actually practice them and implement them. And then they're made, you know, so real in your everyday situation that when you do something that is the complete paradox to what they are, you'll start to realize it very, very quickly. So I had a, a workshop that I, I went through with these um, six steps and I, the, some of the feedback that I got was things like, oh my goodness, now as I'm saying things, I can hear myself say it and I can see you, you know, saying, you know, what that means. So they've got this like this little um, angel devil thing going on their shoulders here because once you're aware of something... It's very, very difficult to become unaware of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, David, you know, people that snigger and think, oh, I've heard it all. Yes, yes, I agree. There's nothing new. In fact, you, it's very difficult to find anything new, really. But are you aware of it? 
And are you aware of how you connect and communicate with other people? And are you aware of the impact that that makes, not only to those around you, but to yourself? Like if you start to change the way you do think, that the upward spiraling feeling, and and I don't want to be all sort of like, you know, like I'm the most happiest person. Actually, I'm pretty happy. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, you know, of course, you know, you have to have sad days. We're all human. Of course you do. But how you react to things and how you cope with them, these sort of tools make a big difference to that. So my, my, the key message I've taken out, and you, the, your six points are fabulous, and, and they could be a real guide for people who are looking to turn around the, the environment in their workplace. But if there's one point that I would take out of all of this, it is that connections are key. The connections we have with the people we work with are the key to our wellness in the workplace. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you have taken that away. I mean, when we're connected, we are so on our wellness path that it's very difficult to come off. Where people that are connected are, you know, happier, they have higher levels of happiness, they lower levels of depression, anxiety, they have higher levels of resiliency across so many different aspects in, of their life with events and, and environments that, you know, you, you would, if you, once you know about it, once you start practicing that, once you start seeing that, it makes such a difference within a workplace. Well said, Karen. Look, your message is really clear and, and I'm a real fan of it. I, I'm a fan of it coming from a, a couple of diff- different directions. The, the whole idea of the numbers, the dollar amount that it's costing our economy, the number of people who are disengaged, but more importantly, from the human aspect, just the fact that we as human beings in the developed world are going off to these jobs for 77,000 hours of our lives And so many of us are not loving what we do. That's the real crime. So Mm. I love what you're doing. Well done. I I wish you every success. And I hope that every organization in the country is running genuine, useful, wholehearted wellness programs. That's the way it should be. But before we say goodbye, you're not off the hook yet. I've got three (laughs) quick questions for you. Are you ready to go? Okay. Yes. Karen, tell me about the one professional achievement that you are most proud of. I think the one I'm most proud of is the one that I've just achieved most recently. I presented a paper that was peer-reviewed to at the National and International Bullying Conference on positive directional communication. So I was immensely proud of that. And uh, I co-wrote that with uh, Shane, my partner, which was a moment that, that was really, it was, it was great, David. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Very good. All right, question number two, what is the one thing that you wish everyone else knew? The one thing I really wish everybody knew is that in the morning, it's a new day. Every morning is a new day for them to start again. Ah, that's nice. Okay, and very last one, what are you working on right now in terms of professional or personal development? Right now, I'm writing an ebook, which is just about finished. Yes. So, and which I'll give you a link to. It'll be free for your listeners. So, oh, that's very kind of you. Now, okay, that's good. I like that. But I I actually meant what are you working on improving in yourself right now? The thing that you're working on? Improving myself. Okay. I am working on. On my delivery. So when I talk to people, I'm, I'm working on that. I find sometimes I'm just way too talkative. <laughs> <laughs> You're passionate about your topic. Karen Rounds, thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today. I love your passion. I love how real you are. It's such a, a great topic. We're lucky that people like you have taken it on as their professional pursuit. So thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. And that was Karen Rounds. In a bleak kind of way, I really enjoyed researching the topic of employee engagement, or lack thereof, and talking with Karen about its causes. 
as we mentioned through the interview, if we combine the awful truth about employee disengagement with the fact that we spend around nine years of our lives at work, it's hard to think of an issue that is more important to our overall well-being. Karen's six suggestions for communicating positively to establish those all-important workplace connections are wonderful. Psychological flexibility, active listening, mindfulness, positive reinforcement, appreciative inquiry, and gratitude. They're straightforward. They're impossible to argue with, yet the evidence tells us they're proving elusive in the workplace. Karen has just finished writing an ebook on positive directional communication and she's giving it away for free. I'll post a link to where you can download a copy on the podcast page for this episode. And as always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Karen. You'll find it all on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Like and comment on Facebook, subscribe and rate on iTunes. Find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Instagram. And I'll be back next week for the next episode in this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.